I've got a few questions for you today. First, can people really change? Second, what should we do with the wayward? And third, have you ever cried during a movie? I'm Jared Halverson, and welcome back to another Come Follow Me Book of Mormon study on Unshaken. Today we'll be discussing Mosiah chapters 25 through 28, focusing on the consolidation of all of these various groups of people we've met so far in Mosiah as they reunite in Zarahemla, and also on the story of Alma the Younger and the Sons of Mosiah, their attempts to destroy the church, and the story of their change and conversion. What happens in these chapters will affect the rest of the story of the Book of Mormon going forward, particularly the powerful missionary chapters we'll see later in the Book of Alma. But let's start with that last question, whether or not you've ever cried in a movie. Now, it doesn't have to be a movie. Expand the possibilities. You could add plays or books, anything where you're presented with characters that you seem to come to love to the point that their sorrows become your own. Their successes feel like personal victories, or their death is just as devastating as if it were really happening. My kids sometimes say they've never seen me cry in a movie, but I don't think they're looking hard enough. I often get emotional, but typically it's when characters have really come to life for me to begin with. But unfortunately, so many movies today spend so little time on character development that you don't really care what happens to them when the action immediately starts to break forth. On the other hand, when a character truly becomes three-dimensional to you, when they've come to life, then anything that happens to them really does feel like it's happening to you. I remember in the movie Castaway falling in love with Wilson. Remember him? It? The volleyball with the bloody handprint? When Tom Hanks finally tried to get off the island and Wilson fell overboard and began floating away, I was bawling. And yet the logical side of my mind kept telling myself, it's a volleyball for crying out loud, get yourself together. But that volleyball had come to life for me just as much as it had for Tom Hanks, and I was devastated. Perhaps a more noble example comes from my college years. This was right at the end of the fall semester. Christmas break was coming up, but we were during those reading days before finals. I was a history major, and so I had to read a ton. And I was sick and tired of reading the assigned books that my professors had given me. So I figured I'd take a break. By doing what? by reading, but reading a book of my own choice. So why not go for the best and hit Les Miserables? I figured I'd read just a couple pages to get my mind off the history papers I was finishing and the history exams I was preparing for. But when I started that book, I was sucked in by one incredible character, the bishop. Now I'd seen the play and fallen in love with the music. So I knew enough of this character, that he was the one that forgave Jean Valjean, that gave him the silver candlesticks that changed his life. But I had no idea the effect that that man would have on me when I read about him. The first 50 pages or so of the book are occupied by this character that comes and goes so quickly in Hollywood's depictions of Les Miserables. But I fell in love with this bishop, this, this gardener of the soil and the soul of those around him. In fact, I was so captivated by this character that I bagged studying for my finals and just spent my time in Les Miserables. He changed me. In fact, before I took off to go back home for Christmas break, I went around my ward boundaries, knocked on all the doors, and asked people if they had any canned goods, food that they wanted to donate. I told them that I was running a food drive so we could donate to the Provo Food Bank. Some of them looked at me quizzically thinking, wait, did I miss a ward service activity? And I said, oh, no, no. I've just decided to do this on my own. 
And they're like, what? Who, who asked you to do this? And I was just kind of uh, uh, my priest, um, my, my, my Catholic bishop from Les Miserables. But I really was moved. I just had to do something because of this character's effect on me. By the end of the week, I remember our entire kitchen floor was covered in canned goods from my friends and neighbors. And I boxed them all up and brought them to the Provo Food Bank, all because of a fictional character that had had a non-fictional effect on my life. I started thinking, if this can happen to us from fictional characters, from inanimate objects, then why don't the people of Scripture have that effect on our lives? When they were real, shouldn't the people in Scripture come to life for us, since they really had come to life at some point, literally? Mosiah chapter 25 is one of the best places to see this happen and to understand how we can make it happen in our own scripture study. Let's start in verse 1. Mosiah 25 is when it gets good again as far as clarity of understanding. Remember back at the beginning of this book, we start Mosiah with King Benjamin, his gathered people, him giving this life-changing discourse. But then all of a sudden we have these flashbacks and split communities and various generations taking place. Chapter 7 through 24 can be really tricky. But by the time you get to Mosiah chapter 25, it starts to make sense again. Everybody's back home in Zarahemla. The three generations in both areas have passed, and that final generation comes together again. So Limhi's people have returned from the land of Nephi and met up with King Mosiah II's people in Zarahemla. Alma's group that split off, they are back as well. So you have these various groups that you've met throughout the book of Mosiah that are finally all together in Mosiah chapter 25. As if to make a point of it, chapter 25 verse 1 begins, Now King Mosiah caused that all the people should be gathered together. No more distinct storylines. They're all being woven together finally. He describes their relative numbers in verse 2 and 3, and then says in verse 4 that all the people of Nephi were assembled together, and also all the people of Zarahemla. They were gathered together in two bodies. Remember, this goes back to the book of Omni and words of Mormon. When Mosiah the first first leaves the land of Nephi and goes and discovers this people of Zarahemla, descendants of Mulek, the son of Zedekiah in Israel that had left shortly after Lehi's group had left. So coming to the promised land, you have these two groups, one descended from Lehi, a prophet, and one descended from Mulek, the son of a king. The Mulekites, by the way, would have been from the tribe of Judah. Lehi was from the tribe of Manasseh. So in some ways you have in here in Mosiah 25, this reuniting of Judah and Joseph, birthright on the one hand, kingship on the other, in fact, this might be an issue later on when you meet the kingmen. There's some possibility that this is kind of where it comes from originally. But in some ways, I think it's a beautiful reunion of these sons of Israel from these two various tribes. Verse 5, notice what Mosiah does with this assembled multitude. He did read and caused to be read the records of Zenith to his people. In other words, the group that had left three generations before and just come back. Yea, he read the records of the people of Zenith from the time they left the land of Zarahemla until they returned again. Now, we just read those things ourselves. That's Mosiah chapters 9 through 22. Continuing in verse 6, Mosiah also read the account of Alma and his brethren and all their afflictions from the time they left the land of Zarahemla until the time they returned again. Now, that's Mosiah 18 and then Mosiah 23 and 24. So, essentially, what King Mosiah has just done is read to them 
what we just read to ourselves. Mosiah 9 through 24. 15 chapters. Can you imagine a general conference address like this? Where the prophet stands up and says, there's a little bit of scripture reading I'd like to do with you. And then he just stands and reads 15 solid chapters. I wonder how long we would last, right? Well, notice their reaction to what King Mosiah has just read to them. Starting in verse 7. When Mosiah had made an end of reading the records, his people who tarried in the land, the ones who stayed as opposed to the ones who strayed, they were struck with wonder and amazement. For they knew not what to think. For when they beheld those that had been delivered out of bondage, they were filled with exceedingly great joy. And again, when they thought of their brethren who had been slain by the Lamanites, they were filled with sorrow and even shed many tears of sorrow. And again, when they thought of the immediate goodness of God and his power in delivering Alma and his brethren out of the hands of the Lamanites and out of bondage, they did raise their voices and give thanks to God. And again, when they thought upon the Lamanites who were their brethren of their sinful and polluted state, they were filled with pain and anguish for the welfare of their souls. Can you see the reaction to what they've just been read? Talk about emotional investment, struck with wonder and amazement, not knowing what to make of all of this, filled with joy in one verse and then filled with sorrow in the next, sometimes raising their voices to give thanks to God and other times just weeping, tears of sorrow. And not just some kinds of minimal emotional outbursts. The word filled keeps coming up, filled with joy, filled with sorrow filled with pain and anguish. This is effusive emotion, all because they had 15 chapters of Scripture read to them. Now, here's the point that needs to be made. We just read the same things that Mosiah read to them. Did we react in any similar way to the same words that they were hearing? In other words, by the time you get to Mosiah chapter 25, you've just read Mosiah 9 through 24. Through that process, the last three weeks of what we studied together, through your own personal scripture study, were you ever struck with wonder and amazement? Did you ever have to step back from the scriptures, not knowing what to think, what to make of what you were reading? Were you ever filled with emotion, exceedingly great joy on the one hand, or pain and anguish on the other? Did you ever shed a tear of sorrow in these chapters? Did you ever feel to raise your voice and thank God for the things that were happening on the page? The first time I asked myself these questions was the first year that I was going to teach the Book of Mormon in seminary. It was summer vacation. Well, vacation for the students. I was in my office working, preparing, studying these things so that the Book of Mormon would come to life for me in hopes that I'd be able to bring it to life for my students in the fall. And I got to Mosiah 25 and was struck, not with my reaction to those preceding chapters, but struck by theirs. Their wonder and amazement is what struck my wonder and amazement, precisely because I hadn't reacted the way they had. Seriously, I remember being st stopped in my tracks at the end of verse 11 and asking myself, why hadn't I reacted that way to those same chapters? And it hit me. If I wasn't feeling any of those emotions 
reading those same stories that King Mosiah had read to them, then I wasn't reading it right. Something was wrong with my scripture study. If it was so unemotional, so disconnected from real people, just characters on a page, one more verse, one more page, I've just got to keep reading. So I stopped and asked myself, why was it so different for them than for me? And how can I make my experience more like theirs? I started to notice something. Back in verses 7 through 11, we see the people's reaction. But pay closer attention to their action that led to it. In verse 8, they knew not what to think, for when they beheld those that had been delivered out of bondage, they beheld them. Remember, there's these two groups, people of Nephi, people of Zarahemla. You've got Limhi's group. You've got Alma's group. Everyone's together in the same gathered multitude. And they could see each other. They could behold one another. It wasn't just that they were hearing some distant story of, of strangers that they didn't know. This was about people that they were about to know very personally. They could look across the aisle and think, this story is about you, your parents, your grandparents, all the things that they went through. Wars and destructions from the Lamanites, the ministry of Abinadi and his martyrdom, the wickedness of King Noah. They're watching it happen, or at least seeing it engraved on the faces of the people that they're seeing, beholding across the aisle. In our scripture study, do we do enough of that? Do we try to set the stage, literally play it out in our minds, behold the things that are occurring? And then in verse 9 and 10 and 11, Notice the word that keeps coming up. Again, the action that brought about their reaction. Verse 9, and when they thought of their brethren. Verse 10, when they thought of the immediate goodness of God. Verse 11, when they thought upon the Lamanites. They had the added benefit of being able to behold, of seeing these people. But to think and think and think some more. To pause and to ponder until the heart has time to catch up to the head with all this space that it's giving it. That's how you turn a two-dimensional character into a three-dimensional human being. That's when black and white text becomes scriptures in living color. I hope in our scripture study we can do a whole lot more beholding and thinking. Because if we do those actions, then the, our reactions can be similar to theirs. And it's those reactions, it's when thought and emotion, head and heart, come together that we really are changed. That's the spirit of revelation, according to section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In fact, as I sat in my office, I was glad it was summer break and no students were there to see me. Because before moving on to verse 12, I sat and thought and thought and thought some more about the 15 chapters that I just evidently skimmed over. I thought about what the people of Zenith and Noah and Limhi had gone through. Most especially, I thought about Abinadi. Not only the glorious message that he taught, but what it cost him to teach it with such boldness. And sure enough, I began to shed tears of sorrow. This wasn't me trying to muster emotion. This was real people coming to life for me and me mourning over the death that followed. I came to know Abinadi 
in ways that I hadn't before. I came to see, to behold Alma and his people. All that thinking and thinking and thinking some more changed me, just as scripture study is supposed to. In fact, it changed the way I taught. I'm so glad this happened at the beginning of my career because cold and clinical scripture analysis doesn't do much to change the human heart. I still remember getting to Second Nephi that first year teaching. And Lehi had come to life for me and for my students. I loved him. And I still remember the night I just taught those final chapters where he's teaching his sons in Second Nephi 1 and 2 and 3. Powerful, powerful messages. But I knew that the next day Lehi was going to die. And I didn't want to teach. Seriously, I remember thinking, is there any way I can avoid this lesson? Because I, I felt like I was an accessory to the crime. Like, if I don't teach it, then he can keep living on in our memory. But if I teach these chapters and talk about Lehi's death, I felt like I'd, I'd ended his life. And I knew that I'd miss him. I did. It was the first time I really mourned the loss of Lehi. Which, again, struck me as odd. Because he dies every time I read the Book of Mormon. Seriously, he has never survived a reading yet. But that time was different. And I realized that we don't tend to mourn the death of someone who was never alive to us to begin with. And you listen to Lehi a little differently when he's real to you. More importantly, you come to know Christ when he's a living being rather than some character on the page of scripture. I had a mission companion. His name was Elder Buckles. Great guy. We served together very briefly, but this one story he told me has stuck with me ever since. He said that he'd never read the Book of Mormon cover to cover before the MTC. That was much more common back in those days. Today's generation of missionaries are far superior in their preparation than we, than we had back in the day. But he said in the MTC, when he began immersing himself in the Book of Mormon, it came to life for him, especially one specific character. It was in the war chapters, which I'm still convinced was left in there to keep young men engaged in the Book of Mormon. But Elder Buckles fell in love with Teancum. Now, Teancum, if you remember his story, he was like the Navy SEAL of the Nephite army. Serious commando missions, right? While the rest of the Nephite army is asleep, there's old Teancum belly crawling across the beach, trying to get into enemy territory so he can move that tent flap when he finds the king and take his trusty javelin and throw it in, kill the king, run back, rally the troops, and then defeat the army the next day. Elder Buckles loved this guy. But because he never knew him, he didn't know the outcome of the second commando mission that Teancum had gone on. Remember that one? So similar to the first, belly crawl through the enemy camp, find the king's tent, pull back the flap, throw the trusty javelin, and this time hit him almost in the heart. Yes, the king died, but not before he woke up, roused his troops, and sent them on to chase down Teancum, who they found and captured and killed. Now, I knew that had happened. I read the Book of Mormon several times before the MTC, and so Teancum's death did not come as a surprise to me. But for Elder Buckles, he's told me, there I was in the MTC just bawling like a baby, thinking there's no way Teancum could be dead. 
He's too fast. He's too strong. He would have gotten out of it somehow. Seriously, he's like looking around. Is there a footnote? Is there something? There's got, can, I, can I do a retake? There's no way this could have happened. He just described to me how devastated he was at the loss of this hero of his. Tiancum had come to life for Elder Buckles. And so this good missionary mourned at that passing in ways that I never had. I hope that our scripture study can become more meaningful by becoming more real. And so I challenge all of us, myself included, to do a lot more beholding and a lot more thinking, thinking, thinking. So that these characters, these real disciples of Jesus Christ, can have a real effect on us in our discipleship. Now, there was one particular group that took this even more personally than the others, perhaps. You see them in verse 12. It came to pass that those who were the children of Amulon and his brethren, these were the wicked priests of Noah. Remember we saw this last time? That there were kind of three subgroups when they were all trying to flee from the Lamanite army during the end of King Noah's reign. You have a group that never leaves their families. Stay back to save them and end up being saved by them. You have a group that ends up abandoning the family, but then coming to their senses and come rushing back to see how they can help. And then you have this third group, Amulon and his brethren, who abandon their families and never look back. In fact, look forward to replacing them and therefore abduct these Lamanite daughters, most likely to satisfy their lust, not to replace their lost love. These people the wives and children of those who had been abandoned permanently, who never had the chance to forgive wayward fathers who had come back tail between their legs, most likely begging for forgiveness for their lapse of judgment. This group instead sees what their fathers have done. They, they saw their fathers flee and then never knew what ended up happening. Now they know. They would have learned from Alma and his group who had been under Amulon's thumb for a while in the land of Helam. And what was their reaction? Very naturally, they were displeased with the conduct of their fathers. And as a result, they would no longer be called by the names of their fathers. So they took upon themselves the name of Nephi instead. We will not be Amulonites. We will be Nephites from this time forward. And so they were. There's something here about names and whose names we bear, whose names we claim. We've seen so much of this, especially in the time of King Benjamin, right? His whole goal was to prepare his people so that they would want to take upon themselves the name of Christ. Isn't that our baptismal sacramental covenant? A willingness to take upon his name. Well, for many of us, the name of Christ settles really nicely next to the name of our fathers, our mothers, our ancestors, our family. That being a part of the family of God is a natural and beautiful outgrowth of being part of our biological family. Because they're all disciples of Christ too. Those two names fit together beautifully. There are others, on the other hand, whose acceptance of Christ's name constitutes a certain rejection of the name that they had been bearing before. And that's the case with this particular group. It reminds me of Abraham in Abraham chapter 1. In fact, there's a phrase that comes up several times in that chapter comparing the fathers with my fathers, as Abraham called them. Take a look the next time you're in Abraham chapter 1, how Abraham distinguishes between my fathers, 
who were idolatrous, the types of people he could not follow in good conscience. And so what did he do? Not feeling trapped by his heritage, by his fathers, he went in search of the blessings given to the fathers and took upon himself that heritage. If there is a difference in spirituality between your fathers and the fathers, then you can do the same. Some children seem to be good because of their parents. And some people seem to be bad because of their parents. In both cases, the fruit hasn't fallen far from the tree. But there are those cases where some people are bad. That's not even a good way to say it. That some people stray, that the fruit does fall from the tree and then roll down the hill and get swept down to the river and end up very, very far away from their roots. There are those who stray in spite of their parents. We'll meet a handful in the next chapter. And there are those that are good in spite of their parents. And that's an amazing subgroup. Elder Maxwell said that sometimes God sends powerful spirits into dysfunctional families in hopes of writing the family tree. Almost a, a branch of such spiritual significance that as they start growing, it shifts the center of gravity and starts pulling that tree back into alignment with the sun. So for subsequent generations, it can grow straight and true. That seems to be the case with this group of the children of Amulon. Well, once this long, scripture-centered general conference discourse is done, in verse 14, King Mosiah makes an end of speaking and reading to the people. And now he wants Alma to speak. Well, I guess general conference isn't over after all. And notice what Alma does in 15. He does what he's always done ever since his sore repentance and flight from the courts of Noah. He did speak unto them when they were assembled together in large bodies. And beyond that, he also went from one body to another, preaching what? The same message he'd heard from Abinadi, repentance and faith on the Lord. In verse 16, he also exhorts the people of Limhi and his brethren. This must have been an interesting reunion of sorts as well. I would assume that Alma, as one of Noah's wicked priests, would have known Limhi as one of Noah's sons. Seeing these two groups, their parallel paths, as they all journeyed back to Zarahemla, it would have been interesting for them to compare notes, kind of like we did at the end of our discussion last week, and to see the miraculous deliverance of Alma and his people, compared to the more humanistic efforts of Limhi and his, because they had been slow to remember the Lord their God. Notice the specific message for them from Alma. He exhorted the people of Limhi and his brethren, all those that had been delivered out of bondage, that they should remember that it was the Lord that did deliver them. It wasn't just Gideon's plan. It wasn't just Limhi's strong wine. It wasn't just their flight into the wilderness and the fact that they got lucky that their tracks faded before the Lamanite army could follow them. Yes, it took all of those human efforts, but it took more. It took the power of God. Nobody knew that better than Alma himself, having been delivered by so many miracles. It was the Lord that did deliver them. Remember we saw this from 1 Nephi 17, And ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led, the Lord tells Lehi's group. Well, here Alma is making sure that Limhi's group gets the same message. Then finally in verse 17, Limhi's people get what they've been wanting for a long, long time. 
King Limhi was desirous that he might be baptized. And all his people were desirous that they might be baptized also. We saw that desire back when they first found Ammon coming into the land. Remember they had asked him to baptize them? They didn't have authority. And while Ammon did, he didn't consider himself worthy. And so they waited. Waited for baptism. Waited to come together as a church. Well, finally the wait is over. And so in verse 18, Alma goes forth into the water and did baptize them. Yea, he did baptize them after the manner he did his brethren in the waters of Mormon. By including that phrase, I don't think that it's trying to rub salt into the wound, but it almost seems like it's saying, you know, Limhi, I baptized like this a long time ago in a place much, much closer to where you were. You could have come. You could have been part of our repentant and baptized group from the very beginning. I'm so glad you're here now. But the baptisms I performed in the waters of Mormon, for that 204, that 450, that decided early on to leave King Noah's wickedness as well as their own, that was seven chapters ago. More importantly, according to the dates at the bottom of the page, That was 27 years ago, give or take. What a heartbreak over what we sometimes consider lost time, a lapsed generation, when we could have been baptized early and instead were baptized late. I hope that we know that it's never too late, that we can change at any time in our lives and receive the blessings. But I think it's also important to remember early on that we could have changed earlier. If you're at that moment of decision right now, seeing some people start to leave a life of wickedness and wondering if you should follow, I invite you to choose. Choose you this day, as Joshua says, whom you will serve. Blessings will always be there waiting for you, but to receive them now instead of 27 years from now. Remember we saw that last week? And they would gladly have joined Alma and his people. By then, they just couldn't do that. And it took outside help from Ammon on this rescue mission from King Mosiah to help them come back to Zarahemla and eventually receive the blessing that they could have enjoyed so much earlier. Verse 18 continues, As many as were baptized belonged to the church of God because of their belief on the words of Alma. For the rest of this chapter, from verse 19 to the end, you start to see this little focus on the church that Alma has set up, the church that Limhi's group is now joining after their baptism. Now, we tend to take church for granted. It's just that's the the epicenter of our spiritual lives. This is how we live the gospel is in community. And yet, church hasn't been brought up much in the Book of Mormon up to this point. And that might be surprising to us. The first time we really see it is in Mosiah chapter 18, when Alma has left, starts to gather these outcasts that separate themselves, set themselves apart from the surrounding community of wickedness, and establish a church at the waters of Mormon. That talk of church continues in the land of Helam, especially when they're under the thumb of the wicked priests of Amulon. Here, again, Alma has come back to Zarahemla. There's King Mosiah and all of his people. And Mosiah allows him to establish churches. 
which seems to suggest that, wait, Mosiah, you, you didn't have any before? I, I don't understand. See, verse 19, King Mosiah granted unto Alma that he might establish churches throughout all the land of Zarahemla and gave him power to ordain priests and teachers over every church. Again, this seems a little odd. Because if you're anything like me, you just assume that all these Nephites every Sunday would go to church. You know, the Zarahemla first ward or the land of Nephi second ward, whatever the case might have been. And yet the word church hardly ever appears in the Book of Mormon until Alma starts emphasizing that at the Waters of Mormon, Mosiah chapter 18. You do see the word church occasionally in first and second Nephi particularly when Nephi is having his visions to understand his father's dream about the tree of life. And he sees in the future the establishment of a church. He talks about the great and an abominable church. He talks about the two kinds of churches only, the church of the devil and the church of the lamb. But even there, it seems less churchy, less brick and mortar. It seems more ideological. Two churches only? Well, open the phone book. There are all kinds of denominations out there. But two different ideological directions, that's all there is. Those that want to fight against Zion and those that want to build it up. That's how Jacob defines those two churches later on. So again, this ideology versus ecclesiology, churches to that first family of the Book of Mormon seem just to be, which direction are you going in? Nephi belonged to one church and Laman and Lemuel belonged to another church. But this was not a denominational divide. This was a family feud. And in some ways, when family is your whole civilization, do you call that a church? I mean, currently, when we can't meet together as a congregation, we talk about home church all the time, right? Quarantine is forcing us to hold home church with all of its advantages and disadvantages. But do we even have to call it church when it's a family coming together to worship God? Isn't that what the celestial kingdom will be? Isn't that what the eternal family is all about? When the church comes down like so much scaffolding, as Elder Maxwell once said? Well, scaffoldings are there for buildings. The eternal family doesn't seem to need something quite so structural. Later on in 2 Nephi, whenever Nephi talks about the church, again, he seems to be speaking more of prophecy of the last days and churches that are built up to get gain or things like that. Here we start to see more of an organization, congregations. And maybe that's the issue. Maybe it's a matter of it has to be bigger than a nuclear family, but it also needs to be smaller than an entire civilization. Maybe that's why church starts becoming an issue, because Alma has set apart this group of believers that have made a covenant. Even King Benjamin doesn't talk about church. It simply seems to be gather all of the people. And they all come as far as that the, they can hear the voice from the tower, as far as his messages can be written and spread. It seemed like everybody was all in on this. But again, by here, I skipped over those verses early on in Mosiah 25, but the numbers are interesting that the people of Nephi are smaller than the people of Zarahemla that they've come into and started to lead spiritually. They're the ones with scripture. They're the ones that remember God. Right? We saw that back in Omni and Words of Mormon. And that's especially going to be important later on when you start seeing believers and non-believers in the same company, in the same culture or civilization, society together. Now, all of a sudden, we seem to have churches and a need for churches bigger than a family, smaller than a society. 
allowing for the differences of people who choose to believe and congregate and those that choose not to. Alma seems to see that difference most clearly of all. In verse 20, again, kind of reminiscent of the size details I was talking about, there were so many people that could not, they could not all be governed by one teacher. Neither could they all hear the word of God in one assembly. In other words, it was even impossible for King Mosiah to keep doing what his father had done, or even what he had done at the beginning of this chapter, gathering everybody together to be able to hear one voice. Instead, verse 21, they assembled themselves together in different bodies, and those bodies they called churches. So again, there seems to be this distinction that within a large people, there are various churches, each one with its own priests, its own teachers, and yet each priest preaching a unity of truth, preaching the word according as it was delivered to him by the mouth of Alma. There could not be congregational unity. There were just too many believers, but they could have doctrinal unity, and that was key. By the way, I've never seen it done better than in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As far as a unity of doctrine, some churches are highly centralized. The Catholic Magisterium, for example, seeks doctrinal unity throughout this Catholic, which means universal, faith. Protestantism is much more subdivided, both congregationally and doctrinally. And we, even within some denominations, there is either a, a, a synod, a, a centralized governing body, or it's completely congregational. And what this congregation of this particular denomination does is okay if it's different than other congregations within the same denomination. Latter-day Saints, more than any other group I've ever seen, strives for this kind of unity. I mean, the fact if you've ever traveled and you can walk into an LDS chapel, you usually can recognize them by the architecture, even before you see the sign on the, on the side. And you walk in and you sing the same hymns, even if it's a foreign language. You're even on the same schedule, the same lessons you would have had back home. You're getting in some far-flung land. That's pretty impressive. What we do to try to get the word out in its unity and its purity. In fact, I remember in Tennessee, I was a part of this community interfaith group council. And we'd meet ever so often and talk about common issues and concerns for the community and how our various faith groups could be a help in these, in these common concerns. And I remember meeting this, this pair of, of women that were in charge of the internet presence for the United Methodist Church. And when they found out I was a Latter-day Saint, they just began gushing. They're like, oh, you Mormons. Is it okay to call you that? You Mormons have the best internet presence we've ever seen. I can't believe all that you do. And it was really beautiful to just feel their holy envy for something that, frankly, I kind of took for granted in the church. But what a tower we've built to be able to get one voice, one word, one truth, one baptism, no matter how many congregations are scattered across the globe. Verse 22 sums it up beautifully. Thus, notwithstanding there being many churches, they were all one church. Yea, even the church of God. For there was nothing preached in all the churches except it were repentance and faith in God. Exactly what Alma began preaching when he first got there. Exactly what he had learned from Abinadi back in the land of Nephi. I'll admit, there are a few disadvantages of the incredibly centralized structure that we have as a church. The one-size-fits-all approach does keep our curriculum, for example, on a certain level 
that allows even the newest Latter-day Saint to come into church and not feel completely lost. That is a great thing for a missionary church that is growing at breakneck speed. It does pose challenges for people that have spent their lifetime within the church. It's the challenge of feeding a growing family and only cooking one dish. As long as there's a new baby in the high chair, and as long as we're all eating the same food, then we will all be drinking milk. Thankfully, there are incredible resources out there, meat filled for anyone that wants to chew on stronger stuff. But again, admittedly, that is one of the challenges of a one church model. That being said, I will still take the one church model over what I see in the divisiveness within other denominations or a lack of unity in the household of faith. Verse 23, there were seven churches in the land of Zarahemla. Sounds a lot like the seven churches of Asia Minor that John wrote the book of Revelation to. Perhaps the number was more symbolic than literal. Seven meaning totality and completion, wholeness. So this whole church in the land of Zarahemla, whosoever was desirous to take upon them the name of Christ or of God, they joined the churches of God. Really important detail. They wanted the name of Christ. They had established a vertical dimension to their discipleship. But in order to facilitate that, to help maintain it, they then joined the church of God to establish a horizontal dimension to their discipleship. That's the cross of Christianity, helping people look up to God, but also helping them to look out to others. The gospel and the church are both essential in our spiritual growth. Verse 24, they were called the people of God, and the Lord did pour out his spirit upon them, and they were blessed and prospered in the land. But if we permit ourselves to skip over the chapter headings that so often stop the narrative in places that it shouldn't be stopped, chapter 26, verse 1, there were many of the rising generation that doesn't seem to fit in what we just saw at the end of chapter 25. They didn't want to be part of this community of saints. They wanted to remain in Zarahemla. We'll be part of society, but not part of this gathered community of saints. 